Welcome to the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. And this month's movie is 1937 or 1938 or 2019's As the Earth Turns. And I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. And wow, I don't know how long this show is going to be, but this is quite a departure from what I'm used to watching for this show. Yeah, I mean, we'll get right into it, I guess. I knowingly went into this one knowing that this is maybe a stretch to call it a movie. Yeah, but it, how like you to to make us out of like a selection, you'll pick the weirdest thing for us to watch. That is so Oh, weird. hell yeah. I mean, I kind of I genuinely last month went into it not knowing what I would pick until live during the recording, but as we started to get into it. I'm like, who, who am I kidding? Of course, this is the selection I would pick because it's up my alley in a number of ways. So let's revisit what got us here. So to dive into it, I had these five films to select from first, also from 1938, the Dawn Patrol, a flight commander in France almost cracks under the pressure of sending men to their death. A pre-World War II, World War One movie, Errol Flynn starring. Uh, 1944's The Happy Breed, a David Lean, I think, boring as dishwater. Uh, British drama, a middle-class family, uh, faces personal triumphs and tragedies when they move to a new home in the suburbs. I mean, this World just sounds like another version of How Green Is My Valley. And it's coming in just shy of two hours. I'm like, no, thank you. 1947, smash up the story of a woman. A singer's wife turns to the bottle when she fears she's lost her husband to success. I, Susan Hayward. I That one was maybe a dark horse one because I would sure like to see how poorly that aged, you know, just uh, the, the, crazy the lady. I mean, that description it almost sounds like the reverse of Star is Born. You know, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to show my hand. I don't regret picking this, but I did have three, I think, solid movies to pick from. I didn't feel like doing a, the Nazi spy Errol Flynn movie. Um, 19, 2019s or 2038. And depending on the source, uh, or, you know, 1938 or 1937, depending on the source, as the Earth turns, an apocalyptic future war that could destroy the Earth is exploited in the silent film. Interesting. We'll get into that history. And then finally, when it, if it had to come down to two, the other selection was How to Steal a Million from 1966. Audrey Hepburn, Peter O'Toole, Eli Wallach. Shot in Paris, a young woman enlists the help of a detective to recover the sculpture that her father, a dealer in phony art, sold to a Paris museum for fear that it will be uncovered as a hoax. That was very tempting. 1960s shot on location in Paris. Like, it's so romantic. It's revisiting the whole Purple Noon thing. That would have been the other selection. But the reason I picked As the Earth Turns is... It is, and it's intrinsic to the whole description of the movie. It is based on a 1915 novel, science fiction novel. Um, so written right around in the midst of World War One, looking forward to what a World War Two world would look like, and very early primordial science fiction themes. 
based off of that and a local guy, a young kid, 20 year old in Seattle in 1937 or 38, again, depending on the source, filmed basically what is being called an independent feature, which I think is maybe being a little generous. It's a young kid with his friends. They filmed a mostly kind of coherent movie. I think we'll get into it, but wildly aspirational. And it was lost to time only to be rediscovered in 2019 and put on exhibition only very recently. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it as we talk about the movie, but uh, you say sort of independent film and yeah, it has that quality at the same time. I almost wondered if this was like a student film, you know what I mean? Someone, this, this, this has the, the air of someone who, this is someone's final project in film studies or film creation. What there's a lot of skill here, right? When you get into, I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no skill. I'm just saying that it has that feeling. No. Yeah. But what you mean or what you're getting at is it's the end of the program. So you're seeing that this is not the first thing. It's not super amateurish shot on shitio. Um, 1980s kids screwing around in the backyard. This was like a, a fair amount of effort went into it and we'll get into it, but it really shows kind of the culminate I'm air quoting culmination of very amateurish, but very high level amateurish film work. And when you dive into it, so it was, um, I got to go back to my notes there real quick. It's um, Richard Lyford, right? Is the guy who wrote, directed and stars in this movie. Apparently this is like the 20th, thing that he's produced in Seattle back in the thirties again, as either stage plays or, you know, filming with his friends. So this is hardly his first shot at it. This is one of his later attempts of taking source material. And I would argue, I read the book, the source material, because of course I did. Of course he elevated it in a lot of ways or in a few ways. And put forth a real earnest effort at a very aspirational story, as we'll get into it. And not for nothing, I want to say how awesome it is that Turner Classic Movies is actually showing this. Yeah, I found like every now and then they they pull out these obscure shorts or or things that don't get uh, aired very often. And they'll put it on just out of uh, curiosity or or as a film historian sort of uh thing to do i will say in my random number generator film selection those will show up occasionally i'll get five minute cartoons or a 10 minute marijuana is the devil's weed educational or, or like you know, the, the 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 mgm world fair presentation of 1937 yeah i've seen stuff like that on there right so i'll pass over those and this was like right at the edge but 45 minutes yeah we'll, we'll take that as like a, a feature sure. film. so yeah. yeah and i mean we're, we're skipping over a little bit of the format of the show i think it's a little silly to kind of go through the level setting of what would be expected in 1937 yeah. cinema. I mean, we're not watching a theatrically released studio made film this is this is akin to like a like I said, a, a final student film or, or you know, a short film. 
So yeah, we don't have to do that. Right. But I'll check the box, but this is the era of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, the MGM era of the Marx Brothers. So you have a day at the races as top box office, right? A star is born, lost horizon. So it's still a very mature talkies again, for what it's worth. I think jazz singer came out in 27, 28. Yeah. I was going to say the fact that the fact that this is a silent film is, is kind of a anachronistic because by this point we're, we're 10 years into talking pictures. Yeah, but filming it in the backwater, you know, again, air quote, backwater of Seattle. That's, a, I think, a technical leap for 1938, right? So right. it's pretty understandable in this case. No, I'm just saying, I don't think you 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 see a lot of silent pictures coming out of that particular era of a film. So it's it's right. interesting. So jumping into the film, I think kind of working our way through the narrative for for what it's worth with this one. It starts out with a scroll explaining what the history is of this movie and goes through what we kind of talked about. This guy, he he did go on to work for Disney and won an Oscar for uh, an old documentary uh, feature, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say this guy, this guy ended up having a career after this. So good for him. And you can see it again. 20 year old, 1937, 20 year old putting on this type of ambitious story, right? But we get that intro, you know, the modern tag onto it, and it jumps into the opening credit sequence. And I'll say right off the bat, like, pretty impressive stuff. Special effects in his opening title sequence of having these letters um, obviously filmed in reverse, blowing away, but all these letters fall into the screen to show his cast of characters. It's showing you it's not just jumping straight into crap. He's presenting this as a full feature, right? So it has the full directed by, written by, starring, and you're going right into a seemingly professional film. Or again, super aspirational um, in what he wants to try and accomplish. And, you know, true to the time, you get your literal zooming in spinning newspaper to set the stage for what we're at. And it is massive battle in Europe claims 40,000 lives or something like that. Right. So again, putting us in where this is at, I don't want to give um, life for too much credit here for predicting the future. Cause a lot of this is straight from the book from the 19, 1915 it's predicting world war two. Well, I mean, and this was depending on the source material, 1936, 37 or 38. So really the actual World War II is only about two or a year to two away. And uh, I think by this point in history, Hitler's already chancellor of uh, Germany. So, I mean, it's not like they didn't know that this was probably coming sometime soon. Well, I mean, again, it it goes to the credit of picking a very interesting book that I mean, people look at it with a modern lens and will try and maybe talk up um, climate change angles in it. But it is there. It's climate being used as weapons. It's predicting World War Two. Um, you know, it, it it's a pretty smart book in a lot of ways that falls victim to its era and style. Like if we want to get into like the book review element of this podcast, I'm happy to go down into that. But it, it's 
it's very interesting. The, a lot of the stuff that kind of rings true today mm-hmm. that comes up throughout this, right? Like most good science fiction. Right. It Timeless elements. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of it is. So war raging in Europe. And we go to what I will argue is the first clear and obvious uh, improvement on the source material. There is a woman in this movie. There are none in the book. Absolutely oh. none. Unless I missed okay. it. There is no female character, no speaking role, absolutely no reference to women whatsoever in that book. So we, we get, and again, the cast here is hilarious and it becomes laugh out loud when you go to the, the white house scene that comes up, but yeah. everybody in this is clearly his buddy and they're all 20 year old, maybe early teenage, 20 year olds. Yeah. yeah. If that, and it's again, very charming, but you'll kind of, I'll kind of roll with it. Right. It's, you know what it is. It's a bunch of his buddies yeah, the, on weekends. Shot I mean, the only time, like you said, it's funny is when we get the scene later with the quote unquote world leaders. Yes. <laughs> that is arguably my favorite scene of the movie, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So it's, they're in a very classic 1930s um, uh, newspaper room. And the, the brassy female reporter who I am, at a loss, I don't know if anybody's mentioned. I don't know any characters' names in this other. I think past. her name is Julie. That's I think that's the sure. only one I got. I'll take it. I mean, I just in my notes said reporter woman, reporter man. I mean, doesn't really matter. There's no character in this. Then arguably maybe Pax towards the end. Right. Um, but she's out there saying, hey, you know, I'm the young up-and-comer coming brassy female reporter i'm gonna get you a scoop right and just takes off Uh, she's gonna get her role and then there's kind of like the dismissive male romantic kind of lead is there (laughs) i don't know if there's any wrong we don't have time for romance in this 45 minutes (laughs) no i mean it fleshed out you can kind of see the archetypes of these characters what they would be and you know he goes to rescue her at some point steals a plane flies across the country <laughs> to do right. it yeah. uh so it, it it would be there it's shorthand um, yeah it's it's all 100 percent shorthand right and by the way i'm gonna pat myself on the back i just looked it up her name is julie it was i was right uh, so one good. name i managed to catch i was paying attention <laughs> so lady reporter julie as i'm being told goes off to a radio station and this is where this element isn't in the book so I appreciate even the slightest hand waving of connecting these characters goes off to a radio station where, you know, just military radio, whatever. It's not really explained. Frankly, it doesn't matter. Receives a radio transmission that he starts to write down that says, I quote to all mankind. I am the dictator of human destiny. Through the earth's rotation, I control day and night, summer and winter. I command sen- I command the sensation of all hostilities and the abolition of war upon the globe. I appoint the United States as agent for this purpose. As evidence of my power, I shall increase the length of the day from midnight to midnight of Thursday, July 7th, by a period of five minutes. Pax. Lifted straight from the book. And again, straight from the book. It's interesting, and I don't know what to take from it, but 
keeping in mind written in 1915 i know and then again in 1937 the idea that the united states they don't do much with it to be clear in either book or movie but the idea of floating that the united states will be appointed as world police is really interesting that somebody would kind of float that so early on back when we were very hesitant to do anything yeah i mean the the u.s i mean the u.s is a superpower as we know it today doesn't really come into being until after world war ii so right and it's this is the part in science fiction that i find so like wildly charming like old science fiction of just where did it come from that i'm going to display my power of extending the day by five minutes I don't know where that comes from, but that is just something I can't imagine seeing anything like that from 1958 onwards. That is just such like a weird concept and displays of power. It just felt so old timey in such kind of a unique and interesting way. I don't know how to describe it any other way than that. I mean, this is such a weird idea. This has got shades of old science fiction all over it. I mean, the message itself and, 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 what Pax has tried to do here, it, it gave me a huge uh, Day the Earth Stood Still vibes. Yep, and this is the t- exact type of stuff that um, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow is lifting from, mm. um, and just kind of not parodying, but sending up a love letter to. This is the very earnest, um, you know origins of this kind of stuff of mysterious powers that have can't explain where they come from but they're very terrestrial in origin all of a sudden there's giant robots or flying ships that come over a mountaintop and now they're just here and you're having to do battle with it in like with old-timey airplanes and stuff it's just so kind of it's cliched now i would say but this is the original kind of a, attempt at some of this wonderment kind of thing. Yeah. And just immensely charming again. I was, again, I, I'll, I'll show my hand. I, I'm totally charmed by this movie throughout. So the radio guy obviously reads this as a joke, you know, just a joker sending this message out. The lady reporter takes this message, goes to her editor. He says it's a joke. They throw it out and she gives the just fantastic silent movie hands on hips. Oh, you kind of acting. And I will say the acting in this is no better or no worse than most silent film acting I've seen. I'll say that. I mean, that's always makeup and their acting in silent films always just drives me nuts. Yeah. I didn't have a problem with it at all. No. So cut to scientists right um in a observatory they detect that the earth has actually lengthened by uh, or the day has lengthened by five minutes you know astrological stars aren't matching up basically the world the universe is running down says one scientist and along with that i'm happy and again one of the major improvements over the book and i'll say this is a trapping of old science fiction old genre stuff Nothing quite as bad as like Bram Stoker, Lair of the White uh, Worm, just mundane garbage. 
but just where the interest lies in these stories in old timey writing is not where the interest lies in modern audiences. They, in the book, they just go on for pages and pages and pages about all these other anomalous things that happened as a result of like Aurora Borealis and all these floods and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, all right, get on with it. We don't need to just sit with this mundaneness. The movie shows that there's flooding. You get a glorious, awful miniature train crashing off a bridge. Well, I mean, that's nothing compared to the to the miniature airplane crash coming up later. Oh, hush. That's it's impressive. I'll say he did a lot of care matching up the uh, the painting on the plane from the real one to his model one. I mean, that's more care than like, you know, Mike Borchardt from American movie and like Coven, that level of detail and continuity. Come no, on. I mean, it was pretty he, good. He did. But I mean, there's something to be said of of having a plane crash the way you would crash like a dirt bike. <laughs> I mean, and then right after that, you know, you get another message from uh, PAX uh, who sent that initial message saying, you're not recognizing the power war continues. Um, I'm going to now cut a hole through the Atlas mountains and flood the Sahara. And we get this beautifully awful space plane just flying around on wires and it blows up a sandcastle and you see a little bit of flooding that's clearly on the coast of At Seattle, the beach. Pacific Northwest. You can see the beach. Yeah. It, again, it. I don't know how you can take this anything other than charming kind of a thing, right? Oh, no. I, again, I mean, I'm, I'm making fun of it, but it's, 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 it's what he had to work with, so... That and it's like the oldest of old school special effects when yeah. a space plane shoots its laser, it just scratches on the film negative. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, this then prompts everybody to accept that PAX is obviously um, the real deal. And moving right along, again, you're in a, a 20 year old's kids' movie. You, you have space planes, you have all that. Why not have a scene set in the White House? Right. With a whole bunch of all your most cliched 1930s ethnic costumes, you got your British, you got your uh, your Kaisered up type of um, Germans, you got your Russians, and it's all hilariously I, like 16 to 19 year olds yeah. in facial hair makeup. Again, I'm not ma- I'm not I'm not dinging him or I'm not making fun of the movie, but there's uh, there's uh, again this this whole scene looks like a high school production with of like kids playing dress up as adults. You're, oh yeah, it's charming. I mean, it's funny though. Oh, and this is where there was no bad take. Everybody's super overacting. Again, in my experience, not a lot different than most. No, I expect that from silent films because you. I mean, with the with no dialogue, you're still it's still like a play. You're you're playing to the back of the theater. And control your shock, but again, made in 1937, the Germans are kind of assholes in this meeting. I'll say. Well, and I mean, they are in the book too. Like I said, Hitler was already in power, so it's not like we didn't know that the Germans weren't assholes at the time, anyway. Oh, and hell, and that's very much in line with the book too. Again, 
right in the midst of World War One, the Germans are very much portrayed as duplicitous scoundrels and just monstrous assholes, which very much of its time, completely understandable, I would argue. Right. And then I am sure this will be my uh, screen cap for the, the episode thumbnail, but you have the presidential secretary come in and she gives the greatest face in the world to signify that now a major earthquake is hitting Washington, D.C. And it's basically depicting what the White House is being literally rolled over. Yeah, People are flying I was going to say their, the their, their, their idea of an earthquake is that the, the earth literally turns on its side. Oh, it's great. I mean, there's big... If, if styrofoam was around or throwing just crap around, you get some surprisingly decent. I think again, black and white hides a lot of your crimes, pretty good blood special effects on some of these um, diplomats and special effects in there. People doing stunts, falling around. It's just a lot blood. of fun. Oh, lots of blood in there. Yeah. Um, so the white house is horribly damaged. They look out. And it's now snowing in Washington in July. Zoinks, right? So with that, it's basically who can deny the power of PAX? Because even in this meeting, you had the Germans just saying this is all coincidence, right? You know, it's still jokers. Say what you will about the, the film writing. That's straight out of the book. And it's alluded to in this in one of the final scenes of the movie, but... Um, I forget where it comes up if it does other point, points in there. The book, it's an armistice is put into place. The world governments start to uh, disarm. The U.S. is, I guess, going to lead some of that effort, but not really. And then as they're disarming, the Germans have their new um, super weapon um, and try to destroy Paris. They're just going to obliterate it, figuring that this is all fake. And in in the book, the space plane comes by and just vaporizes all the Germans, knocks out their entire army, and basically makes Pax's final threat that we'll get to in a little bit. But again, by the way, the book has a, maybe the highlight of the book, has a completely accurate description of people who witnessed the Atlas Mountains being vaporized dying of horrible radiation poisoning days later. Now, like, again, 1915, I mean, people know this stuff exists, but very accurate description of witnessing something and not realizing you're getting dosed with lethal radiation and then melting a couple days later. Right. Very weird graphic element of the book that kind of came from nowhere. But again, it's one of those things when you read old science fiction, you don't necessarily give them enough credit in a lot of places. So when they come out with something that's like wildly like decades ahead of its time and it's kind of common knowledge, it's like, Ooh, wow. Good on you. Kind of stuff. Right. Um, all right. So moving along from there, this is where it's a little bit, kind of goofy more goofy than normal our reporter male reporter knows a physicist and they start talking and theorizing what's going on who really cares 
it then cuts to the the reporter now driving with the female reporter and they witness the space plane crashing or landing right she gets out to go and investigate our hero the main reporter guy just hilariously trips getting out of the car and knocks himself out i just love this complete lazy ass shorthand kind of stuff it's yeah it is not elegant story writing i'll say but she is then abducted um by the pilot of the space plane takes off the reporter comes to realizes this goes back to his friend the physicist and i mean we're moving right along well you forgot to mention too before she pa- she lays down and passes out hilariously, um, <laughs> sure. she, she manages to get the coordinates for Pax's base off of his ship and writes it down on a little piece of paper that she drops and then the male reporter finds and that's how they know where to go. Yes, fair. That's a little bit of a plot story point. Um, so we get the reporter gets his friend they both realize they're pilots oh yeah i forgot about that detail they go off and again pretty impressive they are filming on an airbase in seattle you know walking around real planes again this isn't just shot in their mother's basement type stuff there's real effort to this knocks out a pilot they steal their plane and then they start flying over to quebec basically um, I'm a little unsure as it turns out where the initial story was set. I know they showed a newspaper at the beginning, but it doesn't really matter. It's somewhere in the U.S. Right. So they're flying up to the same location that was set in the book. And again, the book stuff just wallows in just mundane nonsense they run into like an ill indian guy the expedition the different characters that went up there and there's just an inordinate amount of the book time just sitting and caring for a native american dude that just doesn't play into the story at all and it's like filler yeah and it's like come on nobody in 1915 was interested in this very light you know adventuring let's let's get to the get to the story so our movie heroes are flying. They see a little structure and they get zapped by film negatives. And this is where you get, again, just a little bit of detail, a little bit of just the best, aspirational. The best, the best plane crash ever. Yeah, it's a little plastic, <laughs> a little plastic thing going down. I mean, what do you want? But I, again, they, they, they hit the, the impact. The paint matches it, up. It, it, I know, but they hit the, they hit the ground at God knows however many miles an hour a plane goes, and the worst that happens is they have a little blood on them, and they just have to shake it off. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you just rub some dirt in and walk away. <laughs> you got some adventuring and heroics to do. I know. Except, you know, they don't do anything. This does have a bit of the um, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade uh uh, or the Raiders of the Lost Ark story here where none of the main characters have any effect on anything. Nothing would be different if none of the characters were there. Um, but that's beside the point. So they start now walking. They find the um, basically Pax's um, secret compound, which again, a little bit of detail. There's model making but it matches up with a filming location that he could actually go to. 
So you see like a little mo- uh, a model of like silos and chemical tanks and stuff like right. that. But it cuts to them actually going up full scale ones. Again, that's that extra little bit of jump and care that went into this to not make it completely, you know, laughable Am- trash. Right? Amateurish. Right. So they go in there. They find our female reporter. They wake her up. She says, hey, I haven't seen anybody around here other than his servants. They're there. So we got our physicist, male reporter, female reporter. In comes Pax, who is portrayed by uh, Richard Lyford, the actual director of this, who's 20. I will say, again, very arch silent acting. He convinced me he was older than 20. I thought he was older. I, 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 I looked up a little bit on the guy, but I forgot to... Uh, notice his age at the time i thought he was an older guy yeah i mean i'm always kind of blown away everybody looked older back then but you know yeah but this is beyond that he actually looks convincingly or you know well enough middle-aged and plays him at two ages as well and i would say fairly well at it so as he enters the physicist does the don't i recognize you from somewhere cut to flashback Again, very aspirational movie. They're cutting back to now World War One biplane fighter footage. This special effect, I will say, is not so great. These little biplanes bouncing around. But, I mean, for the standard of this movie, this is actually even a little bit worse. But, oh well. Right. So, you have your physicist. He shoots down... Um, packs flying in like an old Falker um, shoots him down. He lands, goes to confront uh, the pilot after he, he got out and they have this very short dialogue scene where we do get the, you know, the title card or the dialogue cards. And he asks him, why didn't you fight back? Right. And Pax responds, I'm a scientist. I am not a killer. And this physicist, response is well why aren't you behind the lines well if i was back there i'd be just making poison to kill everyone right right and then you get his creed that he it seems like he would rather be killed than do the killing but he makes his pledge that he's going to you know make the whole world learn um, right. from him here right and then Disarm. again yeah yeah and this movie is 45 minutes so that's the end of that scene. You go back, and this is where he learns that Paris in the movie was actually destroyed. Right? So that's it. They've had their chance. I'm going to, and this is the same threat from in the book, which is very interesting. I'm going to turn the entire Earth on its axis. Basically swap the poles and make um, and freeze out, use climate yeah. as a weapon. To knock Kill out everyone. Europe, basically make Europe the North Pole. Yeah. And basically turn the tides on everybody, right? And that will be the final lesson. He goes off. The female reporter goes and chases with him. And this is where, her, again, this element is added to the movie where it's like, it where is the lesson in this i got a little confused i'm i'm still not exactly sure how this really ends to be honest with you it 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 is interesting so 
so he's about to throw to switch, right? That's going to right. push the whole earth over. And again, the the interesting thing from this is when you see like the earth standing still, this isn't when the earth stood still. It's not extraterrestrial. It is just a human who came up with this power to do this, right? He is about to do this and he's confronted by the female reporter who says, um, Basically, and she says, as long as humanity exists, there will always be conflict and war. You can't change human nature. Right. So that's kind of like, it's interesting you don't get the give humanity a chance speech. She is just arguing that we're going to be monstrous all the time, no matter what. So if you just wipe out half of the, well, who knows, Eighty percent of the population of the Earth. That the remaining twenty percent are going to still find fight. a way. Yeah, right. So it's like this is just being cruel. Is that well, the the lesson from it? I don't know if it's being cruel. I kind of see it as the you know the type of science fiction that we kind of talked about way back when on on things like when we were doing our DS Nine show where it's it's um part aspirational but part pragmatic i mean i because i think she's right it is in human nature to be in conflict so that's this is where the real change comes from the book and i don't know if it's better or worse so what we what happens is and it's very similar to the book through no um, sabotage or sabotage as uh, Shatner might say there is mm-hmm. nothing that's done but through the process of just ramping up this power probably hubris of packs, the machines I guess overload and basically just blow up right nobody's done oh, is anything that what to happened? it he, he, yes okay. so and the hilarious thing in the book is it's all this lead up to who is Pax Are, we're going to meet him are the characters in there who have no direct connection to the movie versions, they get up there and they see this giant explosion and they go up and the PAX character is already dead and gone. You never see him. He's just not a character in the book other than his communications. Right? So when they get up there, the world is already, or the, the explosions already happen. He's made his threat to the world. It's been communicated that I'm going to turn it on its side. And in the book, everybody takes that threat very seriously because at this point he's blown up the whole German army. He's blown up the Atlas Mountains. He's very clearly a real force. So everybody goes, oh, shit, we really screwed it up this time. We're keep keep sending the message to him. We're destroying all our weapons. And in the book, you jump ahead and you see all the advances. And in the book, it's very optimistic about hum- humanity. It goes into just like one world government and how cultures all blend and there's no differences between people. And it's like, again, 1915, pre-World War II, very Star Trek, Roddenberry-esque utopian. And it's extraordinarily hopeful. And it shows you it just happened. But they did it because they thought this threat was going to happen, but it never would because Pax was already dead at that point. 
there is, they don't really do it with a gun pointed to their head. So the fact that we see now in the movie, Lifer makes that change of, I'm going to do it, I die, and you hear what, if it's more fleshed out, what would be maybe the heart of the story, the you know the audience surrogate saying, no matter what you do, we're still going to find a way to kill each other. And then the place blows up. They all escape. Pax carries out the reporter out to the wilderness. He's obviously wounded. He's bleeding. He drops her off. And he takes, by the way, a great stunt fall, a headfirst fall right into like a, a little shallow river. Right. I was always thinking, I thought that was a pretty good move by the director taking that header. He keels over, they drag him out, and his final words are, I've done it, I've rocked the earth. Right? And you get this weird kind of spinny camera indicating, I don't know. And you get to the end where it's like, having read the book, maybe that's what happens. Similar that that threat is communicated and everybody proactively disarms. But there's not actually enough there in the movie, I would argue. No, there isn't. But I would think that that, since you say that that's what happens in the book, I can ascribe that to happening in the movie. I have a hard time because the way that the information is described around the Paris being being destroyed in the movie, it wasn't destroyed in the book, and he proactively destroys the Germans, and they know that. In the movie, you it's shown or it's suggested that the Germans destroyed Paris with no repercussion. So Pax's threat is hollow at that point. Right. So the ending isn't the same as the book, I think. I don't know. I don't know. This is where it's it, it was. Well, this it is, just this is where the, the, the shortcomings of the medium in which this film was made kind of um, disadvantage it a bit, because I also kind of wonder, too, was was Paris actually destroyed or was this another one of his messages or a test for, for the three of them because they didn't know this information. No I think they it. communicated it to him. Right? No, I thought so, he communicated it to them. Oh, I don't know. I have to go back. Well, either, <laughs> either way, I, there's that. I, th- I think they are angling towards that same ending, but the fact that we're unclear on it when we don't usually have that much ambiguity <laughs> in our watching right. shows that I think there's like a few gaps here and reading some of the background information about the, um, the guy who scored this, he scored the whole thing and they found more footage and added it back in. So at some point there was a 30 minute version of this when they found more fo- footage and it got up about 15 minutes more. So who's to say they found the complete version of the movie? Maybe mm-hmm. there's extra snippets, extra scenes that kind of tie that up. Who's to say? I mean, maybe there's something in there. But again, the the, the book is doesn't stand up so well just because it's so 1915. 
in its mm-hmm. writing and in style. But so much of what it kind of describes in the end is you could make this a Star Trek episode, like a 19, a, a Kirk 1960s Star Trek. Like it has that kind of vibe of like kind of painful growth to get to an end goal. I wouldn't be surprised if someone, someone like Roddenberry read something like this. Oh, I completely think that's plausible. Absolutely. I mean, everybody has their inspirations and um, there just wasn't a ton of this kind of stuff. There's like uh, Armageddon 2488 AD or whatever the year was in that. The old Buck Rogers and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Which again had some very forward thinking things. But that Star Trek kind of ethos, I'm telling you, it, it, it's in that book. It, it's flat out there. And it, it's very cool to see. And the fact that somebody tried to do that as a 20 year old with a fraction of the technology and capabilities that we have now and got pretty close to that end. It's pretty astonishing. It's pretty commendable. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we're kind of at the end on this one. Yeah. That's kind of the end. I mean, I know it's a short episode guys, but but it's a, it's a short film. So, so with that, Matt, would you recommend this and like at what level, kind of a, of a recommendation if we go that okay. far. So would I recommend this? I'm going to say yes, because of the, because of the stuff that we mentioned, you know, the, uh, the fact that this, a film like this was able to be made without studio backing, without a whole lot of resources and for it to come out as competent, if not pretty exemplary for what, what I consider kind of, you know, the, student film even though it's not it, it has it still has that air um i will say i i don't know if i would recommend it for like the casual viewer but if you're someone like us who who likes watching um older movies or has a curiosity about how films are made or if you're a science fiction fan yeah watch this out of cure if for nothing else out of sheer curiosity um and to see some low low budget filmmaking from the thirties, uh, be pretty impressive. So, a yes, but a qualified yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be very much in the same boat. Um, if you're a fan of his, the history of science fiction, um, this is worth your watch because it's like very much of its time. It's not about aliens. It's that sky captain kind of thing of just like ray guns made from just like a super genius german <laughs> right it's it's super cliched but it's one of those things that began the cliches right the original book less so right. in the movie but and then the movie stuff is if you like stuff like american movie that i mentioned before of like the mike borchardt like he's nowhere near like that kind of level of fun, but like the guys who kind of like grind out just crap movies online, you know, James Rolfe, um, the angry yeah. video game nerd kind of stuff. It's yeah, like, yeah. go back. Cause this is, those guys didn't invent this. It was guys like this where it's like nowhere near as easy um, to do it. Right. There's no video. It's watch the Mike Borchardt. If like, American movie and just imagine doing that in 1938 and also apparently having more talent than Mike Borchardt, but 
yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's short as hell. It's free on Tubi. It's it's worth dropping in to have a look at, I would say, as a curio, right? Right. So with that, Matt, shall we set our eyes towards May, where we have a lot more, I would say, to tra- the traditional wheelhouse of uh, films for your options. Yep. And it, yep, it's my turn. So let's look look ahead to May. All right. So first, option number one. 1958's GG, the story of an illegitimate illegitimate waif in late 1800s Paris who was pushed upon by her grandmother to become a courtesan and mistress of a young, handsome, and wealthy heir. Musical, it's one of those options that we had. We've been talking about dipping into the musicals. And actually, we have a, a couple options. We have two. This one, yep. Next, this one's familiar. <sighs> It's come up twice, always threatening to be the John say, Wayne cast. I was no, look, not just that. Like this, the, the, your algorithm is designed to turn us into the John Wayne Donna Reed podcast. I mean, I'll take half of that. Yeah, it's 1945's. They were expendable. We've been through this, but after a de- demonstration of a new PT boat, Navy brass are still unconvinced of their uh, viability in combat. Blah blah blah. World War II, John Wayne john ford movie 1940s little nelly kelly the daughter of an irish immigrant patches up differences between her father and grandmother and rises to the top of broadway judy garland i'm gonna show my hand matt i think this might be our selection this month and then 1969's once you kiss a stranger uh, a mentally unstable woman seduces a golfer. Together, they plot the, a murder scheme to kill the woman's psych, <laughs> psychiatrist and the golfer's rival. And then finally, fingers crossed, my pick from 1982, the year of living dangerously. An Australian reporter and photographer get more than they bargain for during an Indonesian revolution. Director, Peter Weir. I love me some Peter Weir. Actors, Mel Gibson, say what you will. He's a good leading man. Sigourney Weaver and Linda Hunt. I know you like yourself some Sigourney Weaver and Linda Hunt, so I might actually roll back my prediction. But I am down to a little... (laughs) Wait. Which one? Yeah. Little Nellie Kelly and the year of living dangerously are my, my guesses for you, Matt. So I'll take you through my process. Cause when I looked at your list, I narrowed it down to three, actually two mm-hmm. were one, the ones you mentioned, little Nellie Kelly and uh, the year of living dangerously. If for nothing else, then you've been haranguing me to choose a musical. <laughs> I, I put, I put little Nellie Kelly into the consideration because it's okay. It's, Sounds kind of goofy, but it's a Judy Garland thing, so I'll I'll think about it. I was also considering Once You Kiss a Stranger, because you know I like a good murder plot thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started looking, and I was like, I, I was looking at that description for Once You Kiss a Stranger, and I was like, that's just strangers on a train. I'd rather watch that if that ever comes into rotation. Um, and so um, I would say that you could... Uh, Rest easy and enjoy yourself, uh, Matt, because I did end up picking 1982's The Year of Living Dangerously because, as you mentioned, I love me some Sigourney Weaver, and I know this is one of her big acclaimed films that I haven't seen yet. 
and it gives me my flimsy excuse to hold a Peter Weir retrospective by myself, obviously. <laughs> uh, going back, Master and Commander, all sorts of good stuff in uh, Peter Weir's filmography, I will say. Um, hasn't worked it's, in quite a while, but he's a solid, solid director. It, it, I mean, the, I, I've heard of this movie. It sounds interesting. The plot synopsis is good. I mean, young Mel Gibson was talented. I like, you know, around that era, he was good, but I love me some Sigourney Weaver. So that's, that was the ultimately, the ultimate tipping point. Yeah. Lethal Weapon 4 or so is around when he stopped caring in anything, as far as I can tell. So, I mean, 1982, we're, we're firmly, firmly in the, I mean, giving a shit Mel Gibson. No, that's, I mean, this is just, we're just barely out of Mad Max era. Uh, You know, he hasn't let uh, his uh, hatred of, certain minorities come out yet so i mean listen if we in our show have like again we almost have the john wayne cast yeah we we've done john wayne before i think we can handle mel gibson (laughs) yeah i mean you don't look too close into a lot of the characters a lot of these old films again sigourney weaver she's there that balances it out that that's fine right so with that, we'll look forward to that. But we can continue the conversation with as the world as the as the world turns, as the earth turns, and any of these other films. We can keep that conversation going in email. I'm happy to respond and really at length. By all means, let us know where we're really off base, or you know what we got right if that happens occasionally. At tcmchallenge at gmail.com. We can be found on Twitter at TCM Challenge, and we can be on, we're on Facebook with the Matt Matt TCM Challenge podcast. You'll find us out there. Please engage us. It's you know a lot of fun to continue these conversations, and I can be found personally at Pro Sub Zero on Twitter. A lot of old films. I'm diving into like more and more obscure '80s horror recently. I just watched Nightbreed for the first time. Kind of love that crazy, insane nonsense. But yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. And you can find me on Twitter at mhansno207 talking about a bunch of different things, films, um, horror. Over the next month, you'll probably see me post a lot of Doctor Strange stuff when the new movie comes out. But yeah, just come <laughs> find me. All right. So be on the lookout. The Year of Living Dangerously is airing at 8 p.m. on May 31st. So As it happens, we'll likely drop this before the airing, so be on the lookout for it. And with that, I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. Be sure to join us next month when we always shake the earth.